are backstage with Simi DeClerc. I'm Jared, and Adam's here as well. What's up, Adam? What's up, Jared? What's up, Simi? Hi, guys. Happy to have you with us here, Simi. Thanks. Really happy to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the Changelog family of podcasts, and so this is a special experience for me. Great chatting to you guys. Happy to have you. You're the one we're always giving shout-outs to on the show. We're like, hey, if you're a longtime listener, that's you, Simi. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You're the longtime listener, so thank you. <laughs> well, you're a longtime listener and now almost a longtime contributor. We've had some of your code contributing to our transcripts for a while now. It's been up and running, just smooth sailing. We thought we would chat about it, tell the story. I like your story because you're not even a full-time coder. You're an actuary. That's right. Give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll talk about how you came across this little project that I put up on our GitHub issues. Yeah, so like you said, I'm an actuary by day and a hobby coder by night. My journey with coding and programming, it sort of started through work. My first exposure to coding was probably the unofficial world, world's biggest programming language, i.e. Microsoft Excel, which yes. <laughs> I can tell you that the financial world runs on. Uh, and from there, during an internship while I was studying, I got exposed to Visual Basic for Applications, or VBA as it's also called, and started tinkering with some scripts there, automating some processes, and lived in that world for a, for a long time. And then after I finished my studies, I had a general interest in, in programming. The bug sort of bit me through this exposure to VBA. And I started reading up a bit about programming. Uh, one of the first main ways how I got into it was podcast, of which the Changelog family was one of the first that I got into, really enjoyed it. And actually a lot of how I got momentum came through Changelog. The main way how I learned web development and JavaScript was through free code camp, which I heard about on the podcast. Uh, went through some of their syllabus. Awesome. And I've since just been tinkering in my free time, learning, building little hobby websites and projects. And then that's sort of been how I've been going along. And whenever I meet someone and learn that, um, that they work in the trade, I will sort of follow them and, and do my best to to talk the talk of the industry. And it's uh, at this point when my wife... <laughs> When we we're going out with friends and my wife, we meet new people and she learns somebody's a programmer, she'll like sort of just push me that way and say, like, go talk. <laughs> go, <laughs> go talk to go them. My wife does something similar. She's like, oh, you'll like this. You'll like this, uh, this husband. <laughs> yeah, sounds there you go. It's kind of weird. I almost brought up a Silicon Valley reference, Jared, but I'm going I'm to skip that one. Hold it back. I'm not going to bring it out this time. Hold it back. So do you have desires to become a software engineer or are you happy as an actuary with doing this as a hobby? What's your... Do you have an end game? It's a good question. I think if I would, if I had to start over now, I likely would have considered software engineering. Where I am now, though, I'm happy enough where I am, um, and I'm trying to like work in a combination of the two in my work. So there are some overlaps between actuarial science and data science. So trying to get a bit of like the coding flavor in there, some Python at work, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I don't know, I don't know too much about actuaries, but what I do know, and you can correct if this is you know misinfo, is that they get paid pretty well, and that a lot of their work is calculating risk, and I can see where a data science overlap would be. Is it a good paying job, and is is that basically what you're doing is for insurance purposes, or maybe there's other reasons, but like figuring out certain moves are risky or not? Yes. Or people are risky. I don't know. There's risk involved. That is. Just about right. We do have a reputation for being well paid. Yes. We don't suffer. Uh, I'm not convinced that we are 
cut above other professionals nowadays. I'm pretty sure like some software engineers and and lawyers and chartered accountants and the like earn similar, if not at times, um, higher salaries. But we are we are well paid professionals, so that part is true. In terms of what we do, the sort of business slogan is that we are experts in managing long term uncertainty. And so the key application and risk and so the key application of that is life insurance and pensions and the like. Mm-hmm. There are sort of various subfields in that, but the typical technical one that people think about is projections and calculations around, typically around life uh, life risk. So forming a view of a person and like how long we expect them to live. And so if we sell them life insurance, how many premiums do we expect to get before we need to pay the claim, but sort of in a probabilistically modeled way. And a lot of that comes on a practical level comes down to uh, to effectively complex mathematical calculations, which nobody does by hand anymore. Everybody does by computers. And so those calculations on a high level share similarities to the data science world. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of it is around interacting with, with our policy data that lives on systems and getting those out of the, the core admin system and somewhere else where you can then perform these calculations on them. Mm-hmm. This is why gathering so much data is so important, right? Because the more data you have, the more you can have in your model, the more easily you can determine that uncertainty, the long-term uncertainty, as you mentioned. Yes, for sure. And it's a, well, so a lot of stuff there is, is interesting. So that, that analysis, like, like I said, has a lot of, a lot of overlap with uh, machine learning and AI applications. We also spend a lot of time thinking about how the future may or may not be different to the past, mm-hmm. which at the moment during COVID is very topical where the, may, maybe I'm underselling Google, but if you think about how their athletic algorithms work is they show people stuff and if people click on it, it's a, it's a hit. And if people don't click on it, it's a miss. And then they just train that to say optimize. But the implicit assumption in there is that though that system is, is unknown, but stable. And so you can just, it's one, one stable puzzle that you can figure out and there is an optimal algorithm to follow for Adam and they must just find that config. And once they have that, they've got you locked in and that's that, but something like mm-hmm. mortality and, and sort of the rate and times at which uh, people tend to pass away, that is not static and changes over time with medical advances or with pandemics. And so you can't just, there's an XKCD, which sums this up really well with sort of a, a list of experience of previous years mm-hmm. with a little star next to 2020 and a little double star next to 2021. And, and that sort of will be our world probably for the rest of my career where mm-hmm. you can no longer just take, take the past and assume the future will be the same because you now have this anomaly in the middle that you need to allow for carefully. I, I don't know what it was, but there was a, there was this thing I saw on LinkedIn today. As a matter of fact, this morning, it was a satire or at least comedy at, at best. And it was a, it was some sort of show and it was talking about, think of it like SNL or some sort of skit style comedy. And there was this person sort of conducting class in school. And this is like post pandemic school. And uh, it was essentially highlighting the PTSD that people have around the pandemic. And the teacher was talking about what was notable things that happened in 2019. And the class went around and said different things. And he's like, okay, great. What was notable things that happened in 2022? And the class went around and was like this or that or whatever. And the one student says, teacher, what about 2020? He's like, get out, just get out, go to the, go to the principal's office now. It was just like, just forget 
2020 and 2021. That didn't happen. Mm. Go with me, class. What is it? 2018, 2019, 2022, 2023. And that was like the way they were brainwashed. It was it was meant to be funny, of course, but it was that kind of thing. Like the 2020 and 2021 just like totally ravaged all known ways, basically. Yeah, but it's a we don't talk about it. It's yeah. I still haven't watched the movie, but I feel like I almost know all the words to the song. We don't talk about Bruno by this stage by virtue of my wife playing it to our kids. <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno around here, okay? Oh no, no, no. So an actuary with coding skills sounds like a great combination in terms of like you have superpowers. You're already in a well-played field. You're probably more can be more effective, more productive. Hopefully, over time, as you can apply those things to your day-to-day work, maybe get together with some other actuary slash coders. I know we met or we were written to by a lawyer who spoke of his coding prowess over the years and how all he did all of his lawyering through Unix utilities and like, you know, cause there's a lot of paper and, you know, word slicing and dicing. And he just said like all these years, he's always just been a very productive lawyer because he was able to wield the Linux command line and set an awk and Perl or whatever to basically just make his job way easier. And he watches his colleagues and they're just doing tons of things by hand or still inside of, in your case, maybe everyone's still inside of Excel, but maybe you can pull things out of Excel and put them into more capable, you know, more uh, facile programming constructs. Is that something that you're doing in your day-to-day? Like you're trying to automate, abstract, and code? Or are you just starting to think about that as you go about your work very much so yeah a lot of what we do especially in my current role is is currently i'm working in at least part of my responsibility is is financial reporting which is cyclical in nature and so we have processes that we need to run every three or six months and so there is this repetitive nature and this clear opportunity to get that process as automated as and as streamlined as possible i think it for me personally, I've got that sort of hacker tinkering mentality where I like to spend time to like learn the shortcuts in Excel so that when I'm working there, I can work as quickly as possible or code a little extra shortcut, PBI shortcut things, uh-huh. uh, which I use. And sort of around the work that I do and, and um, in my uh, team, we've got various other processes. And I find that there's a kind of mindset there where I was actually encountering, encountering this problem earlier in the week where another member of my team, we get a, an extract of information from, from a, a system provider in one format, but now we need to provide it to another part of a company in a different format. And they wanted us to do that by retyping it into an MS Forms form. And I feel like there's a, there's a, there's a mindset there to say like, no, that is not the answer. They must, it's 2022. They must... There must be a better way. <laughs> like, no, I'm not doing it. And yeah, I feel like that's that is part of something I think I bring to the table to say, like, um, just having that mindset, mindset and understanding of what computers can do, which more or less should be possible, even if I can't do it myself, to say, well, what what should a good solution to this kind of problem look like, and how should we piece things together so that the flow works and we don't have unnecessary manual steps because they are a no fun and be just begging for problems and typos and the like. Well, when it comes to automation, I'm also a fan. And when it comes to manual things that I don't want to do or would be nice to have done, but we're not going to do them because there has to be a better way. 
I'm also a big fan. And turns out we have such tasks around our episode transcripts. Now, back in October of 2020, I opened an issue on our transcripts repo called a GitHub action to auto improve transcripts. And I labeled it enhancement and I labeled it help wanted because while I thought this would be cool, it hadn't quite percolated to the point where like I was actually going to write this because there's other code that needs writing more than this needed writing. But I thought this is like a nice, small, encapsulated, easy for me to spec feature that I would love to exist. And I just kind of put that out there on the repo and it sat dormant for a while. And I thought eventually I would just do it myself. You know, that's kind of what it was like note to self, but I'll put it on an open issue and throw the help wanted on there and see what happens. And then you came along. Do you want to tell why, like, how do you find this issue? I think it was Hacktoberfest or something, but it was how you find it, what was intriguing to you, why you decided, like, I'm going to dedicate hours of my life to, you know, writing this code that runs on somebody else's transcripts. Tell us that story. So as I mentioned, everything in life that I know about code, I learned through Changelog. So I think it was about three or four years ago, you guys did a show about Hacktoberfest. Yeah and learned about it at that point, checked it out. I think the first year at that point, I'd known some coding, but I was uh, only just sort of the first year I basically learned Git through through Oktoberfest. And then the following year, I played along as well, found um, that it was before the spammy phase that I think was 2020 in, in Oktoberfest. So they were still like mm-hmm. friendly repos. We could just like commit your name and things like that. And so that year I did two or three of those, and I fixed some unintelligibles. Actually, can't say that word. I'm so proud of myself for not fumbling it there. That was nice. <laughs> Landed it. I'm not going to say it again for the rest of the podcast. So I fixed some of those. What's funny is if when we say unintelligible on an episode that's going to be transcribed, we might be going into some sort of recursive state. Oh, wow. Where it's actually a proper unintelligible. I don't know. I don't want to say it too many <laughs> times. It might break the repo. Well, well, the the proper ones have square brackets around them, right? That's right. So you know very well the formatting of our transcripts. So for the audience's sake, our transcripts are written in Markdown format. They have some specific aspects to them. They are written by a human. His name is Alexandru, and he probably just heard me say that because he's going to transcribe this eventually. And he has special software that helps him type real fast. I'm not sure exactly how he gets it done, but when he can't, understand what we say like maybe we say now instead of spelling that out he's going to put the word unintelligible in square brackets and this is an easy way for us to go through and improve those transcripts and just find all the unintelligibles and fix them so for a long time on hacktoberfest this was like something that we would offer as a very easy way for people to get involved in hacktoberfest get their t-shirt really easy prs for us to review and merge because we just look at it and, you know, if it's filling out what we think looks right, you just hit merge. And so a lot of people will come every October to our transcripts repo and will contribute just during October, which is totally cool. And over the years, we've had 991 pull requests on that repo. So quite a few people doing that. And so mm-hmm. this you were one of these people. Yeah, so I think it was 2019. I was one of those people that fixed some unintelligibles. In in several in several episodes, <laughs> two for two, uh, did that and did some other small random things and sort of got my four or five pull requests, whatever the the hurdle was that year to get my t shirt, right? And 
2020 came, Oktoberfest came, and I feel like on day one, there was all this uh, complaining on Twitter about the people getting spammed with putting a period at the end of a sentence and random stuff. So that sort of, as somebody who's not really that confident yet, that scared me off in, in, in trying. That's a bummer. Uh, but then last year, 2021, I came back again and scoured around, found some, actually I can't even remember what my other contributions were, but found some other items uh, and then came to the transcripts repo, initially just to fix more intelligibles, and, and came across this, uh, this issue that you made. Mm-hmm. And it felt a bit like the stars aligned for me in terms of that. I had been, I had done some code in in Node and like some Python stuff at work, and I felt like I could, I know enough to be able to piece together um, some a script that would do this auto formatting, and a couple of months before that, I played with GitHub Actions, got some toy stuff going, like a made a small bot that connects to the Dad Jokes API and to Twitter and just tweets a, a Dad Joke every hour. Nice. Get up actions. That thing is actually still running. It gets more Twitter interaction. <laughs> it gets <laughs> more activity than my actual profile. <laughs> which what's the what's the handle? I should have checked that. I will find it and give it to you for the show notes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So made that. So I had done some work with GitHub Actions. So I had sort of that part was not completely unfamiliar. The idea of writing a script that does this wasn't completely unfamiliar. So I felt like I had the the right combination of of background to take this on. Yeah. And yeah, and, then, and I went for it. And, and I guess the other thing is what was nice about this is as you described, it's nice and self-contained. It sort of from the get-go, you get you can be fairly certain that it isn't too big. And the other thing is when previously when looking at, at items on Oktoberfest and as somebody who doesn't code for a living, it's actually pretty daunting to open a new code base and like you get an issue that's like two or three lines of English and then figuring out, okay, what does it mean? Or like where in the code base must you do that? Um, how does it all work? How do you get the thing to stand up? So that's there's like a fairly big initial investment just to to get going if you want to make a, a, a real contribution to a real repo. But but this was nice in that it's a start from scratch, right? Uh, pretty clearly defined goal, like you said. So it it felt really achievable. And yeah, and then I just started hacking away at it, building it bit by bit. Checked in with you a couple of times just to get a sense of like a little more detail about how you're envisioning it working. Mm-hmm. And eventually got it standing up. Yeah. So just to give you a, a break for a minute, since you've been doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, Adam, how cool is it that uh, our free Code Camp episode and then our Hacktoberfest episodes? So we don't actually think about people listening to these <laughs> shows. <laughs> we know they do. I mean, we do, but we don't. We know that people listen. But when they actually have reactions and then they like mm-hmm. it changes their lives in subtle or large ways, it's just cool to hear because we don't hear those stories very often. So that's pretty neat. Like a couple episodes combined to lead you to actually contributing back to our stuff. It's so cool. Yeah. I'm, my mind's kind of blown over here. It's like found free code camp, uh, actually went through some syllabuses, got some courage to do more, found out about Hacktoberfest. Like even that show was like, you know, years ago, mm-hmm. um, a long time ago. I think we did two of them. Yeah. And it was, it was even like an internal debate. Should we do more of those? Should we do that every year kind of right. thing? And maybe that has like diminishing returns or whatever, but it's just interesting how you put something out there and you, you connect certain dots in the world and people actually connect them to, and it changes their life in some small way or some large way. I think it's just, and then it comes full circle. It's like this feature is 
is like super cool. I mean, I love this feature. It's, it's, it's like, there's so much more we can do with it. And you know, it's, it's cool that you contributed to me. Yeah. So let me describe the feature as it stands today. And then maybe you can give a little bit of the story. We should say that Simi also wrote a blog post Mm -hmm. that y'all can read called auto improved transcripts with GitHub actions or how I taught Logbot to change change logs logs like magic. <laughs> say that say that five times fast. Uh, no, thank you. So the details of some of that um, can also be read if you're interested in that. But the way the feature stands today, so it, there is a GitHub action on our transcripts repo that runs a script that ingests all of the transcripts and runs them through a series of transformations and applies standardized formatting rules according to our desires to every single transcript. So some examples of those rules are commonly multiple spelled things such as, well, JavaScript is the big one because JavaScript technically has a capital J and a capital S, but it's very difficult to keep that consistent throughout you know, iterations of transcripts. And so some people will capitalize the J and not the S and other times it'll be all underscore and it's like, or all lowercase. And we just want that to be uniform throughout all of our transcripts. So that's an easy, easy one. Then there's terms like ML ops, machine learning operations, which is, has, it's like a, you know, it's a phrase in the industry and it has a specific way that the people that created that term use it. It's capital M, capital L, capital O, lowercase ps. And oftentimes it's like two words in our transcripts. And so like that kind of stuff, inconsistencies. It's basically a linter for text and just the way that we want things formatted. The other big one is our timestamps. So I mentioned Alexander. He has uh, something that spits out a timestamp every so often. Every unintelligible is timestamped so that you can click to it on our page and easily skip to that part of the episode. But then also he'll just throw random timestamps in. Every so often, I ask them to do it often, but it's like every three to five minutes. And those just have a very computer formatted extra zeros. They're just formatted as, as a computer program would output them. So another transformation that we do is we reduce those to a more simplistic form because you're going to read them on the website. And so we pull out the, tra- the not the trailing zeros, the leading zeros, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so that's a script that is triggered by a GitHub action. Every time a push goes to the transcripts repo, it's going to go through, and we went through a few iterations of this, how this works. Maybe you can talk to that part, Simi. And it, it actually just commits the change. So we trust it enough that every time somebody pushes to uh, the transcripts, Logbot's going to come in behind them, reformat that file, and push the changes. And so it works all day, every day, even when we're sleeping, just does its <laughs> job as, as faithful programs do, right? As a bot should do. Yeah, exactly. So that's the feature. How do we get here? How do we get here? So you mentioned you started off knowing a little bit about GitHub Actions. You knew a little bit of JavaScript and Node, and you also hop into our Slack and said, "Hey, Jared, I'm thinking about working on this." My spec was brief, apparently too brief because it needed some more information. I think the main thing I wasn't sure is like how the whole GitHub action workflow was going to work. Was it going to commit? Was it going to open up a new pull request, et cetera? 
and then you got going on it. But I know there was more to the process than that. Was there any particular aspects or decisions you made or things you hit against that were problematic or that you had to overcome hurdles? Right. Yeah. So maybe to jump into the one at the end that you mentioned first, maybe around how, how do we actually want it to, to execute? We uh, had gotten it going and the first commit was actually a pretty big one because now it's going through basically everything and and fixing uh, applying all of these stylistic changes to every single episode. And while the other ones that you mentioned, the JavaScript and the MLOps and those things appear here and there, but aren't always as prevalent, the timestamps were everywhere. So basically every episode, there were every transcript, there were multiple timestamps that need to get fixed. So the first time we ran it by hand and just made I think we went like a couple of big commits just to to flush the existing transcripts, mm-hmm. and then from there we we set it sort of idle. And again, sort of this being one of my first real world contributions, it was a little scary to just have it auto commit immediately, just in case you never know how something breaks in unexpected ways. Yeah, don't don't push to prod on Friday and all of that. And and so at first we made it uh, make a pull request. Uh, I was really hesitant. I think you were pretty bullish. It was you were suggesting we just let it go immediately, and then I lost it all of it. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I roll. I like it. We'll deal with the fallout afterwards, but I was happy to go step by step because you felt like we should. Yeah, and then I think after about a day, we saw it was working fine, and we just said, "No, let's just have it auto commit." Mm-hmm. And and that actually makes it easier because now you don't have the complexity of what happens if you run it after one episode and it's got changes, but maybe you don't come around and merge that PR yet. And now another episode comes in, like you get new complexities there. So it's actually simpler for it just to like jump in immediately. Pops on. Yes. Um, on a commit and follow it up immediately. Mm-hmm. Plus opening a new PR is actually creating work for us. I was okay with it at first, but it's like, ultimately I don't want to have to merge a bunch of, PRs from a bot. I'm already merging PRs from other people. I would love for it just to do its thing. And I thought that was going to be a lot harder than it was. I think you were also surprised in terms of how the GitHub action works to just make its commit. You just, I mean, you can just make up a email address and I'm not sure if that's like a standard GitHub actions, uh, account name or email how that works, but you like, you basically just commit it and push it. And it's like, Hey, everything's fine. Kind of surprising. I thought you'd have to have a token or something. Yeah. That's, that surprised me too. And I learned, I hope I can still remember all of it, but I, I learned some about like a little bit more about how Git works and how GitHub interactions interacts with Git. And but for me, basically what it comes down to is, well, GitHub has solid auth and you can't, I can't act as you on GitHub. I can, on my computer in the Git CLI, type in any email address and the Git CLI doesn't verify that. Anything you want, yeah. I own that. And how GitHub treats that, if I remember this correctly, is if I typed in any email address on the, on the terminal and that GitHub user has made a ve- one verified commit to this, to this repository before, then GitHub will attribute it to that person. So I also try to... I think I actually tried to impersonate you, Jared. I couldn't do that. I tried to impersonate Linus Torvalds. Impersonate. I couldn't do that, but I could. <laughs> I could impersonate, <laughs> like like we mentioned uh, in the pre-chat. I I don't think I'll ever be at that level, but that's okay. I've got other redeeming features. Yeah. But so because Logbot had made other 
commits to this repo, I could just use its uh, username and email address in the Git CLI effectively within this action, and it, that part just worked. And I initially got there, and it was a pretty easy and simple solution after trying to like get a token for for another user and using that. But then there's weird cyclical things in GitHub Actions where it's actually pretty cleverly designed. Where in the default case, a a commit from an action doesn't trigger another action to run that should run on commits. But if it's coming from outside, so basically how this uh, how the GitHub commit trigger works is if it's a commit from an outside profile, it will run. But if it's a commit from itself, it won't run because otherwise it would create a, a circular reference. But now I was, the other thing I was trying was making it look like it's coming from outside and then it kept triggering itself, which not what we wanted. So a couple of hours uh, spent learning there, but we got it working. <laughs> yeah. Working eventually. Yeah. And so I guess just, and, and in general, I always find it interesting to encounter these little areas of, of programming and computers where, where in many other aspects, there's a well-developed um, testing paradigm and the idea of writing testable code and writing unit tests for your code is sort of something else I try to build in, but then you uh, build into the sort of around the script itself, around the important parts, but then you come to GitHub Actions and then there's, at least to a novice like myself, no immediate way to test how this thing's going to work other than that they're actually run it in the wild. And so the solution I came up with that is to just on my fork of the repo deploy it there and just like run it there just to see that it's doing what I wanted to do uh, and then when I was happy enough with that then to bring it over onto the real transcripts repo. Yeah some of that speaks to Gary Bernhardt's idea of functional core and imperative shells where you want to push the imperative parts of your program the the command structure, the the parts that are doing I/O, that are accessing a database or some files on disk, or they're reaching out to the network, and you want to push these to the outside areas of your program and have all of the pure, functional, clean, deterministic, reproducible, fast code, you know, inside like an M and M, like a thin candy shell, and inevitably every project has those areas where it touches the real world. And you you just can't do your nice little unit tests. You know you can't just run that tight automated loop and get it get any sort of confidence that's going to work. You actually have to go and do something like, well, I'll create my own repo and I'll fork it and I'll have this thing over here and I'll run it manually against this. It reminds me of Gerhard, who just created his own Fastly endpoint, you know, inside of our Fastly account called Lazoo.ch or something, and he was just you know changing Fastly configs against his own domain in order to test before he changes them on our real domain because you don't you want to have like something like production but not actually production and so these things also always come up it's kind of like the glue code and the the nitty-gritty stuff of like i can't do this any sort of pure awesome excellent way but i can do this in this kludgy not awesome but it works kind of way and I, I don't know, I kind of like that aspect of programming where it gets really practical at a certain point, you know, where you're like actually moving the bits around and making things change and putting it into the real world use. So, so that was a totally fine solution to that particularly hairy problem of like, how do I iterate on a GitHub action without blowing these transcripts away on accident, you know? <laughs> yeah, that made me think of of something else that I... 
heard on this podcast before, and the more I'm speaking, the more I realize everything I know about programming I learned here. But there was one where you <laughs> spoke, <laughs> spoke to someone about functional programming, and the way you explained it, that, that was, I thought was really awesome, is that functional programming is not about shunning side effects, it's just about being really explicit about them. And uh, like you just described, having... Uh, having your your functional bits yep. clean and being having it be clear when when is there side effects when not because as much as this clean functional code is is awesome to to nerd out on right code is only useful if there's if there is some re real world side effects so they need like there needs to be some in game some email sent or some file changed or something displayed on the screen somewhere otherwise it's just spinning in the void exactly otherwise what's the point of all this thing yeah exactly probably eric normand it's probably eric normand usually if we're talking functional programming it's with eric normand we've talked about it with other people as well but mm -hmm. he comes to mind i think on js Barty, we had a great episode with him a couple of years or 18 months back eric norman's awesome for sure so when it comes to the clean part though here's what i like about this so i am not a big code reviewer i know i looked at the code uh, I understand what it does. I was not interested in like refactoring or changing anything, but here's what I liked about the code that you wrote. So the, the actual JavaScript is probably like 50 lines. This is not a thousand, 10,000. This is not a large program, right? This script is probably 50 lines of code. There's two things that I like about it, maybe three. The first one is all the replacements are held in the exact same place. So Everything's a regular expression. You can talk about that uh, as well, regular expressions if you like. But it's all just like, here is a, an array of regular expressions. And when it comes time to add a new rule, well, you're just gonna write a regular expression. It's gonna be, there's one way to add new rules to the formatter. And that's nice, because I don't have to go digging through for like, here's the timestamp area, and here's the punctuation area, and here's this other area. You know, it's like all right there. So that's pretty cool. And the other thing that makes that even cooler is that you do have unit tests around that. And so I can very easily, as I'm writing new rules, as we do from time to time, I think I've added two or three since you finished, and I probably will add more as I think of them. I can go in and add the rule, and I can iterate on the rule, and I can go add examples in the unit test area. And this is like pure functional stuff, right? Like this is the, the really clean, smooth, here's all my examples. Here's the input, here's the output that I expect, and I can just tweak that rule until it matches, you know, for all six or seven or however many examples I can think of. And so that makes it really extensible. I mean, we're not going to change it all that much, but probably we're going to add new rules over time. And so this is like really super easy mm -hmm. to get that done. I love that. Great. Thanks, yeah. Oh, was that two or three? I think I, ha yeah, you're welcome. I thought I had another point, but I've, I've, I've since lost it. That might have been three. Yeah. Two barely. What's interesting, I think, is when you talk about the iterating, Jared, is that why to speak to current form, line 11, 12, 13, and I guess 14 are like open and closed sourcing, like different versions of that. Are you saying that you might tweak a single rule or a rule set, like multiple rules to sort of fine tune the output? So I did add those. And so those are just, that was actually my implementation of like one thought applied to a couple different circumstances. And so those are just like, I could have written like one more complicated regular expression, or I thought, well, why do that? Cause the more complicated your regular expression, the harder it is for you to read later. I'll just create a few simpler ones to apply the same thought 
And that thought is like how we handle the word open source mm -hmm. and open sourcing and the words closed source, closed sourcing, you know, in our transcripts. And so, yeah, it was really easy. Mm -hmm. I came up with those by going to the tests and adding all the examples I could think of, of ways that I'll see it in the, in the transcripts and, and then the output, obviously, that you want to end up with. And then I could you know, that's like test-driven development style, I could create those rules until everything is green. And so, yeah, that was really easy to add. Now, I could have just done one line, a very complicated one, probably. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, well, I got all this space right here. I'll just add more rules and have the same output. And so that, it was flexible that way. And then I thought of the third thing that I like is that you can just run the thing locally against your own. Like, it doesn't always run in the context of something that's going to commit and push, right? Like you can just run the, the script against your local clone of the repo. And so you can go change a transcript and run it. You know, you can do that kind of stuff. So it's really easy to play with it just because of the implementation of how it works. So that was the third thing. I just remembered it. Go ahead. Thanks, Jan. That basically stems from my comfort with Node and my fear of GitHub action. So I try to keep as much of, <laughs> of the implementation in, in Node uh, and just have like, like you said, have the core just be one command that GitHub Actions would then also run and then with checking out and uh, committing and checking and pushing it back up around it. And to your point around these these four regular expressions that in theory could have been one, it's, a, it's actually sort of a, a general principle that that I feel like I applied a little bit in this whole thing about like, it just needs to work and it needs to be good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. There is probably some linter framework out there that I could have used for this, but I don't know what it is. And I could have spent as much time as I did coding this, finding that and figuring out how that works. But this works too. And just as you could have like spent maybe 10 or 15 extra minutes to find that one, that one regular expression that encapsulates these four, you save that time. And now I can glance at them and I can see both what they're each doing and that they probably could have been one, but that it's, but that I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to understand that one. <laughs> without, <laughs> exactly. without. Like, I actually, I remember I started off trying to write one, you know, I, I remember this now because I thought of a few different cases and I'm like, I'm just going to write one reg X cause that's pretty much what we had done thus far. And it was just getting complicated. Cause like, could it be open or closed? And you have like an optional deal there, this or that. And then the question mark on the D cause it might have a D it might not have a D, but then, you know, open has adds an ED, close already has the E, so you're just adding a D. And I'm like, don't think too hard about it, Jared. Just make multiple rules. It's not this thing's not going to run uh, a gazillion times a day and cost us more mm -hmm. money if it has to run through more regular expressions. You know, it's just going to run super fast anyways. So I remember just landing on that and being like, yeah, good enough. Like this is utility code, right? It doesn't need to be super sleek and like the most impressive thing ever, but it's just as easy to add another one later. You know, it's, it's not like it's being, it's so verbose that it's hard to read. It's not. It's actually better that it's verbose because it is easy to read because you can see the individual permutations of, you know, the word open source, right? open sourced, closed source, closed sourced, and then the INGs that might come with it or not. You can really see what you're trying to do. I think a bit more clearly because you weren't so clever, honestly. And sometimes that's the case. I mean, the cleverest code isn't always the most readable code. Seldom. And sometimes a little bit of verbosity goes a long way to understanding, you know? Yeah. In terms of, like, adding to this, would we go then, because there's other, like, common 
brand names that I see mm-hmm. not right, which is like GitHub and GitLab. They both have camel case. That's a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, would you go then because those two brand names occur quite a bit? Same thing with maybe Elasticsearch. Sometimes it's camel case when it's actually two words. You know, would you then could we should we go then and and like just really do a lot more? There's no reason not to at this point. It's just so easy. It's too easy. Adam's favorite new phrase. It's just too easy. It's too easy. Yeah, it's too easy to do that. So, yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to, you know, to actually do the nuts and bolts if you think of ones and you don't feel like writing the regex, Adam. But, yeah, there we should have, I mean, now that we have this, we can just utilize it all that we want. Now, there is one caveat, uh, which we run up against, and I still haven't actually fixed, which is when you do a batch, a large batch, on the Phoenix app side, right? So on changelaw.com side, what happens is our website via webhooks gets updated when the transcripts repo gets updated, which is pretty cool because if somebody comes and fixes an unintelligible, well, then GitHub sends a webhook over to our Elixir app. Our Elixir app says, hey, the transcript's been updated. It sucks into the new version and it re-renders. And so it immediately is new on the website, which is what you want. You don't want to have to like do a thing sorry and that's uh, when i when i did those fixes that's pretty rewarding because you can like i can make a little change in in github and then go back to the website and then like see a contribution that i might change a, a real website out there yeah totally and that's what i say when i merge people's pr is i'll say your change is already live on the website you know um as i'm merging which is and i can say that with confidence because it's worked very well for many years however here's when it doesn't work when you change like 600 transcripts at once and we get maybe 600 webhooks. I'm not sure how GitHub does their batching, but I think they don't. I think they're just going to hit us 600 times. Somehow, some of those get lost, and they don't actually update on the website side. And so what I still need to do and haven't done is have some sort of a, even it's just a mixed task that will go and say, hey, just go ahead and go grab all the transcripts that have been updated, and we'll go catch those, those kind of tr- stragglers or have it run on a routine or something. So if you went and said, every time GitHub is misspelled or miscapitalized, fix all those, and it happens in a whole bunch of transcripts, yeah. and you commit that all at once, that very first one might not 100% take on the website, but subsequent ones will. So there's a little bit of a, I guess you could consider that an implementation bug, but not one that's worth dedicating a whole bunch of resources to at the time. Well, I could see, you know, running a cron job twice a day, you know. Yeah, totally. Pull the stragglers essentially once a day even is probably enough. Or on the hour if it's not too much traffic. I don't think on the hour is necessary though. But right. I'd say twice a day would be a good, you know, good sequence. Yep, that'd be pretty easy to add. I basically just have to write the mix task that actually just loops over all of the episodes with transcripts and checks to see if they have new and then just whichever ones do update. And even if, if that ran daily i mean it'd be a no-op for for most things you know it would only be when we had a big batch on github that it would actually even do anything so definitely doable meaning on the word github no and the and the github side of the of the <laughs> okay. system which, which would probably happen if you get if you get the word github in too yes exactly which uh so what are the other things that i that i just got reaffirmed through doing all of this is that regex is are hard and that having these tests is um, both for 
where you expect it to change and where you don't expect it to change is it then at least gives you guide uh, guardrails to make sure that mm -hmm. this gnarly combination of slashes and and brackets that you wrote is actually doing what you wanted to do yeah and i'll I'll show the the limits of my powers here. I did actually try to write the GitHub one, <laughs> but I couldn't figure out how to not change URLs. So whenever there's like a ah. github.com slash with stuff in front of it, that one you don't want to change, I'm assuming. Yep. And I haven't been... I've, so there you're probably working, looking for word boundaries. So if you found GitHub with word boundaries on either side, I'd have to think uh, there are cases where it might be GitHub with a period at the end because the end of a sentence. And so you have to catch for that case, but you would match on GitHub with, uh, I think it's slash B, lowercase B, I think is boundary. And so that ensures that it's not any uh, non-word characters before or after. And then you'd make sure, and then you have to do the the special case for, for punctuation, which I think I might've done for one of these. I was gonna say, does your, does your regex, does it have an issue with opensource.com, Jared? Uh, we'll see if that one's in the set of tests. I'll let you know. <laughs> if not, we should definitely work on it. Now that we think about the fact that there is an opensource.com. And we do link to them often, so that's why I suggest that one. Uh, I'm looking at my tests, and my tests do not account for periods. Except for the GoFumt one, I have a test that has a period. But we leave it in. We, we still detect it, but we leave it in. If I had a guess on top of my head, I think probably opensource.com might break it at this point. Yeah. But I'm confident, at least in my skills, to, to get that one done. I think word boundaries is the, is the key there. But yeah, we could collab on that. And it'd be easy to create the test inside the, the jest file uh, for github.com and just make sure that it doesn't get futzed with. Well, just a quick search on our transcripts repo which I think we have linked to opensource.com. Or at least we, we may have not said it in the transcript, but... For sure in the show notes, but maybe not in... An for sure in the show notes. So this may be an edge case or maybe an indication of potential issue. So searching for opensource.com does not find any matches. So it, it's possible that we may have changed opensource.com to opensourcing.com. Oh, you think that we've... You think we've said it before... But now we change it to open source. It's though. quite possible is all. I just don't know. I can't say for sure with any certainty. Well, if you search for source.com, you'd match it there. Oh, that's true. Well, even if it wasn't in, it's going to be in like 20 times thanks to this conversation in about in a week or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So gonna, oh. This backstage episode is like the ultimate test for this whole format thing, isn't it? Okay. I have found it. Go time 59. Okay. They we linked out to or somebody had mentioned this post is called the seven stages. Yeah, the seven stages of becoming a Go programmer. And it's now it's now HBS colon forward slash open space source dot com. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. So there's a bug in my Reddit X. Of course. <laughs> Love it. I never thought about that. So that's great. Yeah, so all you gotta do is add that to our list of tests and then just modify that regex till it and then rerun it. And so now that will become a fifth line of this. And roll those back somehow. Uh, just rerun it, right? Would that roll that back then? Um, no, that's true because now it won't match the check. You'd probably manually fix it, right? Manually fix. If it's just the one, I'll manually fix it, yeah. Yeah. If there were 733 of them, then we'd write some code for that. Right. 
So now when we do certain words like GitHub even or GitLab even or open source, we have to confirm or consider that we've said them as a URL somewhere or right. have linked to them in, and you know, we'll go back and that's part of actually Hacktoberfest too is a lot of contributions will be, well, this actually makes sense to link up mm-hmm. or maybe it doesn't and we'll allow that. It's not like we're going through and linking up every single thing, but if they say this post is called the seven stages of becoming a Go programmer and it has a link to somewhere, I actually don't even know why that's linked to opensource.com. I, and actually, I do know it's, it says this post, so that that's the reference. So that does make sense, right? So in that case, it totally makes sense to like link up the text in a transcript, where normally we just don't do that. Like it's it's more or less meant to be readable, not clickable. Yeah, because the show notes are clickable and the transcript is readable, generally speaking. Right. But we have had people go back and add links to things that are referenced in a transcript. It's just not something that I actively do or think about. I know it's in our list of things in the readme of like, here's ways you could improve is you could link up things that are linked, that are referenced, Mm -hmm. but it's few and far between. And I think it's law of diminishing returns because anything of real substance is going to be in the show notes linked up there. Yeah. On December 7th, changelogbot was the last update to that file. And it says apply standardized formatter to. Yeah you know, all these different files. It was like 219 other files that were updated as a result of your great work. And then maybe this is the only case we actually had a .com in there, so it broke the one case. That's what we call an edge case right there. Yeah, I'd never even thought about that. I guess that's the other uh, great advantage of using uh, Logbot is you could just, it gets blamed. You don't get blamed. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. This is Logbot's problem. Blame the bot. That's right. So that, that reminds me, talking about our show notes links, Simi, is you also did some work on some show notes stuff that we never really quite landed or got finished, but you had some ideas around, because we have our show notes linked up in the exact same way our transcripts are. It's all on GitHub, and that's actually a two-way sync. So when our app changes things on its side, it updates GitHub, and when GitHub changes on its side, it updates our app. Because once they're published, we can go in and edit them in our admin and we want that to be synced. So that's actually a two-way sync, whereas the transcripts is a one-way sync, a little more complicated. But there, you had some cool ideas. I never even thought of this. Like, you could go through our show notes and just check for dead links and open up issues against dead, dead links. Problem is, there's a bunch of them, wasn't there? Like, a bunch of them or something? Yeah, I have a branch somewhere where I got that going. So had a, I've, got a proof of, yeah, I've got a proof of concept of that. Ran it through, ran into some interesting question uh, problems there as well. One that I only learned recently through something else, I, I learned that one can only make 65,000 requests at a time, uh, but I <laughs> learned that the hard way through this, so I had to um, right. write some code to rate limit and just like batch batch the requests out a little bit. Uh, so it was the, it was sort of the same high-level scaffolding of get all, the, get all the files, read them in one by one, run, uh, parse them through. Mm-hmm. In this case, pick up the dead ones and then like record them somewhere. But yeah, so that's, um, there's, there's like a working prototype somewhere that I can uh, push back up. But then, yeah, that, that creates the next interesting thing about like, how do you expose that? Because like you said, there is, there are a fair amount of them at the moment. Right. So our initial simplest idea is like each broken link gets its own GitHub issue on the show notes repo, which could be thousands of issues, which maybe is too simplistic. They were like, well, what if each episode gets one issue with its broken links? 
in there in the body of the comment or something like that. And now you start managing basically issue state on subsequent runs of the script because if there's already an issue for this episode, do I update the issue? Mm -hmm. Do I open a new one every time? It actually gets to be a hairier coding problem than this one was. And perhaps just, uh, you know, open up a bunch of issues that never get closed that we never, we don't care enough. I don't know. I mean, it's the kind of thing that we could put somebody on, go out and fix these link. you know, find the right link and, and fix them if there's, if it's manageable, but. I think the issues way is probably the most pragmatic way of doing it because the issue state does become an issue later on if you haven't gone and fixed it. And the simplest thing probably would be an internet. Uh, an editorial kind of concern. So it probably require, you know, some sort of autonomy to move, but with some parameters, meaning like the most likely thing to happen is just delete it mm -hmm. and maybe remove the link, but leave the text. And with some sort of parentheses, it says editor's note, you know, was linked, but the link is now dead or something like that. I don't know, some sort of way to communicate that. Right. But at that point, it's like, is that really super valuable? I guess it's unviable to have links that are dead and people are potentially clicking them and right. getting upset or not finding the thing that should be found. But then there might be like the thing of like, well, there's a better resource now and then that would take some time. So like each one has a its own sort of exactly particulars around to actually solve the problem of, of fixing the link. You know, it's not just, oh, it's dead from the new one. It's, it's a lot of different things. Yeah. We have people emailing us all the time telling us they found a better resource for this link that we have on our website. <laughs> Such truth, man. And we're oh always gosh. like, eh, delete. Yeah. No, I'm not going to link to your spammy blog. But I think the most common case is this page no longer exists. And then the second most common page is you actually screwed up and you, you messed up the link the first time. And all it is is going to be a quick fix or, you know, something to actually get that link fixed. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much value there are in those show notes over time. I know people go back and listen to our old episodes. Do they go back and click on the old show note links? I suppose from time to time. But it's like, you know, is it the, is it treasure in them hills or is it just like you're, you're cleaning up a, a junkyard? What do you think, Simi, since you've been a listener? Do you think there's some value in, let's say, episode 200, for example? We're on like 470 something like, right? Like 479 just shipped today, for example. So episode 200, if we go back that far to a show notes list back then, and there's like four or five broken links because internet happens, right? Which I think should actually be a shirt. I like that. Internet happens. <laughs> um, you know, what do you think? Would you, if you went back as a listener, like, I want to go back to 200. What was 200, Jared? I think was that, was that? Uh, well, Richard Hip was 203. I know that one. I want to say... I'm looking it up. Raquel? Was it Raquel? JavaScript and robots with Raquel Velez. Yeah. Rockbot. That's right. Raquel Velez. It's impressive that you knew that. Well, it's just 200 for some reason. I just remembered it. But that's a pretty notable episode. It may not be so Greenfield, but maybe somebody goes back because they're a fan of her. And, you know, they're like, oh, I want to just figure out what she was talking about back in these days or whatever. They read the show notes. There's some dead links. Maybe once to her blog, maybe it's to something else. Would you find value in as a as a listener going to old school shows with broken links and desiring them to be fixed. Yeah, as you were talking about it now, I was thinking through it. The one plausible scenario where it could be valuable is a new listener going through the backlog, which is probably where I was when I when I started, like discovering the thing and then going back and listening to old episodes, learning about things for the first time and then wanting to find out more. 
I guess if it doesn't work, then you just Google the thing and, and you get there anyway. Or, or I think like one of the two things that the broken links that the, the script found was projects that are just dead and they don't exist on the internet anymore. Yeah. It's probably a lot of dead GitHub links probably. Wow. So I went back to Rockbot's episode 200 while we're talking and just started clicking on show notes. Four <laughs> of the first five were 404s. Uh, yeah. Four out of five. Wow. Yeah, the, the internet is more fragile than, than we realize. And that's 2016, so we're talking uh, six years ago. Well, this is a, a big job ahead of us now if we're going to like commit to <laughs> fixing show note links because that's... Yeah, well, so Oktoberfest, like, just like make that another another thing that people can go to. It, it is going to take more of your time probably to like assess for each link where to go. Right. At least people can. We've had less value in our show notes being open than we have our transcripts because the the contributions on the show notes repo are lower quality, and a lot of times they're people who are adding links to things, mm. and I'm not, and I'm like, was it actually mentioned on the show, or do you just think this is rel- you know, related? And it's always like, I have to go back and listen to know if we actually referenced it. We tend not to just put things in that are related unless they were talked about. But I can understand where it's like, actually, here's the best reference on this piece of content. Why not have it in your show notes? I get that as well, but it requires a whole bunch of mental overhead versus a transcript on Intelligible Fix where I can just look at it yeah. and it looks right and hit merge. So we have had, we've had less contributions on show notes and the ones that have come in have been just not the most high quality contributions. And so... I assume if we had a list of broken things, it'd be easier to judge, you know, for a Hacktoberfest-like situation. It's like, ah, this one was broken. Here's the fixed one. Or, ah, I deleted a bunch because they were broken, you know. And in some cases, the the links there being broken is sort of nostalgic. So it's almost <laughs> like a feature, not a bug even. There you you know? know, right. Because internet happens, and this is an example. You know, it's almost like they should be immutable. Maybe you then just add a, we know this is broken, internet happens, like a little... <laughs> yeah exactly that's kind of where adam went with it with like uh you know take the link out and in parentheses say like broken link or something yeah the other thing i think you mentioned one when we were discussing it jared is uh wayback machine links uh, which i think will happen at times right. but not always yep that's another way of thinking about it as well because yeah a lot of these like it looks like her blog just no longer exists at rockbot.me and so we link to some of her blog posts and they're just gone as well as NPM camp, which apparently we talked about npm.github.io just gone. A couple of these are to Twitter and they, those still work. This Google search, you can, you can't be it if you can't see it. I'm not sure what that Google search was about, but I think it's probably something that somebody said on the show and that Google search just, it doesn't go anymore. I don't know why that what doesn't go either. I was trying to fix that. Maybe it never did. <laughs> Who knows? Anyways. So yeah, show notes. There's definitely room for improvements there and room for automation, but it's a little bit a little bit trickier. All right, Sammy, anything else? Anything we left unsaid? Any uh any aspect of this that we that's interesting that we haven't talked about or things you're thinking about for your future in coding or anything like that? Yeah, no, I think we've covered most of, of my little adventure here. So we've talked about how we got it how we started, how we work together to get it there and some some of the niggles along the way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I guess from here. Well, I've said it. I said it before via Slack, but just want to say it again audibly here. Thank you for doing this. It was very yeah. fun for me. I enjoyed it. I love having something that exists now that didn't previously exist and going along. You and I kind of back channeled throughout as you were working on this, and I enjoyed our interactions there. I just really appreciate that you did what you did and you contributed this to our little part of the internet that's made it better. It's pretty awesome. Thanks, yeah, and I, I really enjoyed it too. I I learned a lot. It's uh, I get a lot of joy from the fact that um, I now have a, a bit of real code that's that's adding to this real website and to this to the podcast that I am a long time listener to and that I really enjoy. So that's um, that gives me joy as well. If I knew Elixir, I maybe would have <laughs> poked a bit more in the on the main side as as well. But that is a um, <laughs> I haven't gotten as far. Uh, on one of the, I think on one of the shipment episodes, you guys talk about like the process to to get the the main site up and running for local development, and that, that's something I thought about. Should I try and like learn just enough Docker to get that going to just at, at least make that story easier? <laughs> I think Gerhard's waiting for code spaces and not Docker. I was gonna say I think there be dragons in that. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> I think we're we're trying to get a, a totally online setup where it's just like click a button, similar like the deploy to Heroku button on, on your readme, you know, like deploy to some cloud space and just be able to start coding. We want that. We don't have that. And I know that our dev setup has gone through multiple iterations and none of it's, I don't even think the readme is up to date. Adam had, had been poking through cause he has to set up every once in a while. And it's just like, <laughs> how do we do it now? And I'm like, I don't know. I man. didn't even do it on this new machine. That's how, that's how scared I am of trying to do it. I just, I tell you, brew install Postgres, brew install Elixir and you're good to go. And that's pretty true, but not 100% true. And you're on windows. So definitely not true. It had to be a Docker setup. Yeah. And I mean, like you guys, uh, your, your old slogan used to be like something, something open source. Right. And I think I'm probably not the only one. There are probably other people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, Got it going, and then I realized I don't actually know what it is. Um, That's all good. Yeah, th there's probably a lot of people who um, who are keen to contribute, like I am, but who don't know Elixir and or don't know how to, to get it going. So I think you know, yeah, there's probably value to you in, in if you can make that on ramp easier. You make it more more contributions in, in around October time or other times of the year. Yes. I'd welcome a Docker image if uh, if we weren't planning to go to code spaces and like there's just a possibility of more awesome around the corner, right? So I think that's where I'm I'm held up personally of pushing that yeah that desire because I'm familiar with Docker enough to use Docker. I personally wouldn't mind using it, and uh, but if code spaces is just around the corner for us, we have two initiatives happening in the next month or two, and then I think we'll have some time potentially to focus on a code space dev environment if we so desire it and i think we do and i believe we also have a chance to work with Corey and the team at github to make it happen i'm not sure how much they'll play a part in it but they'll at least play some sort of role in like guidance or mm -hmm. air support something like that so there's some sort of collaboration possible to happen there we just have to have the bandwidth to do it and i mean you guys you guys have a great platform so i'm sure it'll be good marketing for them if you're a, a case study uh, for interest for me though, is it is it because the you're ironically on a pro paid account that it's not fully available? Because on on my free GitHub account, I have access to code spaces and and can use it on my repos. Do we not have access to it, Jared? I didn't. I just figured that we, if we wanted it, we would just we would just get it. I think we could get access to code spaces. I don't think we have it set up to actually run with our infrastructure 
you know, all in the groove. Right. And that might just be because we haven't even tried. Maybe it's just like a one, two, three kind of a thing. So it's possible. I just haven't honestly put a thought into it since that ship it episode, just kind of been on hold. Yeah. And because my dev environment works just great, I'm just (laughs) making progress. Moving along. I haven't been the best steward of the change.com repo in terms of outside contributions uh, for multiple reasons. One's dev setup. The other is like, there's no clear roadmap and like, what are we actually working on and doing? A lot of that's because we work in fits and starts. Like I'm actually back on the code base now doing things, but I spent months doing nothing. And then also, like you said, there's just not a lot of Elixir people and there's not a lot of, it's difficult to work on somebody else's website without clear vision, right? And I don't think we always have the clearest vision, nor do we display that when we do have the clearest vision. And that's a lot of that's because I'm not that great at communicating these things to the public. Like that transcripts repo issue was an example of how you ought to do it so that it actually is actionable. And I don't do that very well or very often on changelaw.com because honestly, by the time I get around to it, I'm just like, I'm going to start working on it and coding on it. And so I think there's a lot of things that have played into that not being as well contributed by outsiders, but certainly the dev setup aspect of it has been limping along. Mm-hmm. And I know Alex Kutmos got it working for him. I know Lars Wickman got it working for him, but neither one of them enjoyed that process. So it's, it's currently still work. But yeah, I think we could get it easier. I think we would get more contributors. E- easier to do and then also clear and present things to work on and ideas, you know? Yeah. We've had contributions over the years, here and there. But it's hard to have a public roadmap and invite contributors to a website app, you know? It's not like a library. It's not like a platform. It's like our website. But Yeah, and I guess that... That people use it and we want to have certain things, you know, like when we've had requests and people are like, well, how about again, we just had somebody say there's no volume button on the player, you know, and that could be a contribution pretty easily. Yeah, totally. So stuff like that could be, but, and that's pretty vanilla JavaScript too. So, yeah, I guess it's a weird, uh, an almost uncanny valley of nice to have. So you'd create an issue for it, but not so essential that you fix it immediately that I can sort of sit there and, and wait for him. For a contribution. Right. And then there's like small things, which you kind of sometimes you might as well just do it yourself because it's small. And there's like big ambitious things where I'm not even sure how we're going to go about it. So like putting that out as an issue, like I wouldn't want somebody to have to work on that, you know, just because it's so vague right now in my own head. And so, yeah, I guess like digestible chunks of work that are big enough that I'm not just going to do them myself, but are small enough to be like this. They're just few and far between. And I probably am not looking for those opportunities and I could be. I feel like what I've learned from Tech Twitter at that point, uh, this point of what I'm supposed to ask is, have you considered rewriting it in Rust? <laughs> <laughs> I will take it under consideration. Yeah. But so like the, the Elixir choice is, is an interesting one. And I, I get that it's uh, um, something that you enjoyed when you interacted with it. And that it's, I think it's cool that this app exists in its open source form as you've written about it. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if it had been in, in something more common, you, that may have been sort of more mainstream. More mainstream, yeah, but might have been another road to to getting more contributions. I guess, like you said, it's not, not always as clear. It's actually work to carve out specific pieces of work uh, that yeah. that is right for contribution from that perspective. Yeah, there are definitely not as many people who are familiar with Elixir as they would be if it was a Ruby on Rails application, for example. 
or if it was a JavaScript SPA or something with a node backend. But I guess I don't care all that much about those aspects. I feel like as we build out new areas, like I've, I'm not sure if I've teased it on a show or not, but I tease it to you, Simi. Like I'm thinking about doing an API and a changelog command line so you can like play our shows from your command line and stuff. And like I wouldn't pick Elixir for those. Um, and that is one of the reasons. Like I think I don't think it's the best tool for those particular jobs, maybe for the API if it's just part of the app, right? But for the command line tool in terms of distribution and stuff, I think Go is a, a, a great choice. And I think that, you know, as we have maybe smaller ancillary things like our transcripts repo, if we had like a command line repo that was its own separate project in Go, well, I could see more contributions coming into there than would ever come against changelog.com. So hopefully we open up new opportunities as we move along. I definitely think Elixir as a dependency has probably limited to a certain degree outside contributors, but I think more so it's the lack of vision and clear like inroads to, to contributing that's done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess that what you've hinted there is um, I might have to learn Go now. Actually, I'm also going to have to learn Go. And around your question, around Adam earlier on whether fixing the show notes would be useful, that was sort of another aspect of even this whole transcripts thing. It's is it essential? No, but it's it's cool and it's fun and it's a it's a thing to do it. So like, yeah, Jared, your idea of having a podcast player on the command line is (laughs) completely unnecessary, completely over the top, and I love it for exactly that reason. Um, and I think that's sort of fun. Um, <laughs> so do I. Well, hopefully that becomes a thing and not just a thing that I talk about. Uh, we will see as time progresses. But I'm I'm getting more and more keen on the idea. I did write a little web server for our survey game that we play. We play like a Family Feud style game. I'm not sure if you listen to JS Party or Go Time, but those two shows both have a Family Feud style game show format, and we have like a UI for it. And a game board with scores and stuff. And and the, are the sound effects. And I built that with. Is the sound effects in there as well, or is that separate? Uh, the sound effects are not in the web UI, although they are for uh, for the Jeopardy game. Nick Nisi built that board, and it has the sound effects built in. This game has the sound effects just separate in our soundboard. So everything but the sound effects are in there, but it has you know scoring, it has highlighting, blah blah blah. And the back end of that is a Go-based web server. So I've dipped my toe back into Go. That's open source on our on our changelog account. There's not much to it. You know, it's probably shorter than your transcript formatter script. But it was fun to do a little Go project. I did one back when I was consulting. I did a Go-based API probably seven, eight years ago now. And this this was my first time dipping back into the Go waters and and um, so, yeah, I'm also going to be learning it if and when this changelog command line thing starts to take shape. We've got, you've got a Go podcast, right? Can't you like get some of your hosts there to, to get us going? Yeah, exactly. In fact, Matt Ryer has already looked at my code and given me some good feedback on <laughs> on the very little code that I wrote. Apparently, there was things I could have done better. So <laughs> no surprise there. Cool. Well, let's call it a show shall we again Simi thanks yes big thanks yeah big thanks pretty cool stuff to the listener out there check out the blog post 
all the links to all the things are in the show notes. Check out this transcript because this will be the craziest changelog transcript of all time, the most self-referential. And if we have any infinite loops going on our GitHub actions, it's going to be because of this episode's transcript. So stay tuned for that one as well. Speaking of transcripts, I have added a new feature to the website just yesterday. I saw this. I like this a lot. This has been a long time coming on my to-do list, which is that you can subscribe to be notified when a transcript goes live. So this episode of Backstage will come out when it comes out, and then the transcript won't be ready for a few days, sometimes five, sometimes if he falls behind, it could be up to a week. And if you want to be notified when that transcript is actually published, you can now subscribe to be notified on the episode page. So scroll down to the transcript, click the button that says, I don't know what it says, notify me when this transcript is published and we will shoot you an email. So that's a new feature. Uh, So definitely maybe try out that new feature as you're waiting for this crazy transcript to post and waiting for changelog bot to format said transcript and see how he does. (laughs) 